Part four of the Praise of Folly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. The Praise of Folly by Desiderius Erasmus. Translated by John Wilson. Part four. And now I think you see what would become of the world if all men should be wise. To wit, it were necessary we got another kind of clay and some better potter. But I, partly through ignorance, partly unadvisedness, and sometimes through forgetfulness of evil, do now and then so sprinkle pleasure with the hopes of good, and sweeten men up in their greatest misfortunes, that they are not willing to leave this life, even then when according to the account of the destinies this life has left them. And by how much the less reason they have to live, by so much the more they desire it. So far are they from being sensible of the least wearisomeness of life. Of my gift it is that you have so many old nesters everywhere that have scarce left them so much as the shape of a man, stutterers, dotards, toothless, grey-haired, bald, or rather, to use the words of Aristophanes, nasty, crumpled, miserable, shriveled, bald, toothless, and wanting their baubles, yet so delighted with life and to be thought young that one dyes his grey hairs, another covers his baldness with a periwig another gets a set of new teeth, another falls desperately in love with a young wench and keeps more flickering about her than a young man would have been ashamed of. For to see such an old crooked piece with one foot in the grave to marry a plump young wench, and that too without a portion, is so common that men almost expect to be commanded for it. But the best sport of all is to see our old women, even dead with age, and such skeletons one would think they had stolen out of their graves, and ever mumbling in their mouths, life is sweet, and as old as they are, still caterwauling, daily plastering their face, scarce ever from the glass, gossiping, dancing, and writing love-letters. These things are laughed at as foolish, as indeed they are, yet they please themselves, live merrily, swim in pleasure, and in a word are happy, by my courtesy but I would have them to whom these things seem ridiculous to consider with themselves whether it be not better to live so pleasant a life in such kind of follies than, as the proverb goes, to take a halter and hang themselves. Besides, though these things may be subject to censure, it concerns not my fools in the least, inasmuch as they take no notice of it, or if they do, they easily neglect it. If a stone fall upon a man's head, that's evil indeed, but dishonesty infamy, villainy, ill reports, carry no more hurt in them than a man is sensible of, and if a man have no sense of them, they are no longer evils. What are you the worse if the people hiss at you, so you applaud yourself? And that a man be able to do so, he must owe it to folly. But, methinks, I hear the philosophers opposing it, and saying, tis a miserable thing for a man to be foolish, to err, mistake, and know nothing truly. Nay, rather, this is to be a man. And why they should call it miserable, I see no reason. Forasmuch as we are so born, so bred, so instructed, nay, such is the common condition of us all. And nothing can be called miserable that suits with its kind, unless, perhaps, you'll think a man such because he can neither fly with birds, nor walk on all four with beasts, and is not armed with horns as a bull. For by the same reason he would call the warlike horse unfortunate, because he understood not grammar, nor ate cheesecakes, and the bull miserable, because it makes so ill a wrestler. And therefore, as a horse that has no skill in grammar is not miserable, 
no more is man in this respect, for that they agree with his nature. But, again, the virtuosi may say that there was particularly added to man the knowledge of sciences, by whose help he might recompense himself in understanding for what nature cut him short in other things. As if this had the least face of truth, that nature that was so solicitously watchful in the production of gnats, herbs, and flowers, should have so slept when she made man, that he should have need to be helped by sciences, which that old devil Thuth, the evil genius of mankind, first invented for his destruction, and are so little conducive to happiness, that they rather obstruct it, to which purpose they are properly said to be first found out, as that wise king in Plato argues touching the invention of letters. Sciences, therefore, crept into the world with other the pests of mankind, from the same head from whence all other mischiefs spring. We'll suppose it devils, for so the name imports when you call them demons, that is to say, knowing. For that simple people of the golden age, being wholly ignorant of everything called learning, lived only by the guidance and dictates of nature. For what use of grammar, where every man spoke the same language, and had no further design than to understand one another? What use of logic, where there was no bickering about the double-meaning words? What need of rhetoric, where there were no lawsuits? Or to what purpose laws, where there were no ill manners? From which, without doubt, good laws first came. Besides, they were more religious than with an impious curiosity to dive into the secrets of nature, the dimension of stars, the motions, effects, and hidden causes of things, as believing it a crime for any man to attempt to be wise beyond his condition. And as to the inquiry of what was beyond heaven, that madness never came into their heads. But the purity of the golden age, declining by degrees, first, as I said before, arts were invented by the evil genii, and yet but few, and those too received by fewer. After that, the Chaldean superstition and Greek newfangledness that had little to do, added I know not how many more, mere torments of wit, and that so great that even grammar alone is work enough for any man for his whole life. Though yet among these sciences those only are in esteem that come nearest to common sense, that is to say, folly. Divines are half-starved, naturalists out of heart, astrologers laughed at, and logicians slighted. Only the physician is worth all the rest. And among them, too, the more unlearned, impudent, or unadvised he is, the more he is esteemed, even among princes. For physic, especially as it is now professed by most men, is nothing but a branch of flattery, no less than rhetoric. Next them, the second place is given to our law-drivers, if not the first, whose profession, though I say it myself, most men laugh at, as the ass of philosophy. Yet there's scarce any business, either so great or so small, but is managed by these asses. These purchase their great lordships, while in the meantime the divine, having run through the whole body of divinity, sits gnawing a radish, and is in continual warfare with lice and fleas. As therefore those arts are best that have the nearest affinity with folly, so are they most happy of all others that have least commerce with sciences, and follow the guidance of nature, who is in no wise imperfect, unless, perhaps, we endeavour to leap over those bounds she has appointed to us. Nature hates all false colouring, and is ever best where she is least adulterated with art. 
Go to, then. Don't you find, among the several kinds of living creatures, that they thrive best, that understand no more than what nature taught them? What is more prosperous or wonderful than the bee? And though they have not the same judgment of sense as other bodies have, yet wherein has architecture gone beyond their building of houses? What philosopher ever founded the like republic? Whereas the horse, that comes so near man in understanding, and is therefore so familiar with him, is also partaker of his misery. For while he thinks it is a shame to lose the race, it often happens that he cracks his wind, and in the battle, while he contends for victory, he is cut down himself, and, together with his rider, lies biting the earth. Not to mention those strong bits, sharp spurs, close stables, arms, blows, rider, and, briefly, all that slavery he willingly submits to, while, imitating those men of valour, he so eagerly strives to be revenged of the enemy. Than which, how much more were the life of flies or birds to be wished for, who, living by the instinct of nature, look no further than the present, if yet man would but let them alone in it. And if at any time they chance to be taken, and being shut up in cages endeavoured to imitate our speaking, tis strange how they degenerate from their native gaiety. So much better in every respect are the works of nature than the adulteries of art. In like manner I can never sufficiently praise that Pythagoras in a dunghill cock who, being but one, had been yet everything, a philosopher, a man, a woman, a king, a private man, a fish, a horse, a frog, and, I believe too, a sponge, and at last concluded that no creature was more miserable than man, for that all other creatures are content with those bounds that nature set them, only man endeavours to exceed them. And again, among men, he gives the precedency not to the learned or the great, but the fool, nor had that Gorillus less wit than Ulysses with his many counsels, who chose rather to lie grunting in a hogsty than be exposed with the other to so many hazards. Nor does Homer, that father of trifles, descend from me, who not only called all men wretched and full of calamity, but often his great pattern of wisdom, Ulysses, miserable. Paris, Ajax, and Achilles, nowhere. And why, I pray but that, like a cunning fellow, and one that was his craft's master, he did nothing without the advice of Pallas. In a word, he was too wise, and by that means ran wide of nature. As therefore, among men, they are least happy that study wisdom, as being in this twice fools, that when they are born men, they should yet so far forget their condition as to affect the life of gods and after the example of the giants with their philosophical gym-cracks make a war upon nature. So they, on the other side, seem as little miserable as possible, who come nearest to beasts, and never attempt anything beyond man. Go to, then, let's try how demonstrable this is, not by enthymemes or the imperfect syllogisms of the Stoics, but by plain, downright and ordinary examples. And now, by the immortal gods, I think nothing more happy than that generation of men we commonly call fools, idiots, lackwits, and dolts, splendid titles too, as I conceive them. I'll tell you a thing which at first perhaps may seem foolish and absurd, yet nothing more true. And first they are not afraid of death, no small evil by Jupiter. They are not tormented with the conscience of evil acts, not terrified with the fables of ghosts, nor frightened with spirits and goblins. 
they are not distracted with the fear of evils to come, nor the hopes of future good. In short, they are not disturbed with those thousand of cares to which this life is subject. They are neither modest, nor fearful, nor ambitious, nor envious, nor love they any man. And lastly, if they should come nearer even to the very ignorance of brutes, they could not sin, for so hold the divines. And now tell me, you wise fool, with how many troublesome cares your mind is continually perplexed. Heap together all the discommodities of your life, and then you'll be sensible from how many evils I have delivered my fools. Add to this that they are not only merry, play, sing, and laugh themselves, but make mirth wherever they come, a special privilege it seems the gods have given them to refresh the pensiveness of life. Whence it is that whereas the world is so differently affected one towards another, that all men indifferently admit them as their companions, desire, feed, cherish, embrace them, take their parts upon all occasions, and permit them, without offence, to do or say what they like. And so little does everything desire to hurt them, that even the very beasts, by a kind of natural instinct of their innocence, no doubt, pass by their injuries. For of them it may be truly said that they are consecrated to the gods, and therefore, and not without cause, do men have them in such esteem. Whence is it else that they are in so great request with princes, that they can neither eat nor drink, go anywhere, or be an hour without them. Nay, and in some degree they prefer these fools before their crabbish wise men, whom yet they keep about them for state's sake. Nor do I conceive the reason so difficult, or that it should seem strange why they are preferred before the others, for that these wise men speak to princes about nothing but grave serious matters, and trusting to their own parts and learning, do not fear sometimes to grate their tender ears with smart truths. But fools fit them with that they most delight in, as jests, laughter, abuses of other men, wanton pastimes, and the like. Again, take notice of this no contemptible blessing which nature has given fools, that they are the only plain honest men, and such as speak truth. And what is more commendable than truth? For though that proverb of Alcibiades in Plato attributes truth to drunkards and children, yet the praise of it is particularly mine, even from the testimony of Euripides, among whose other things there is extent that his honourable saying concerning us, a fool speaks foolish things. For whatever a fool has in his heart, he both shows it in his looks and expresses it in his discourse, while the wise man's are those two tongues which the same Euripides mentions, whereof the one speaks truth, the other what they judge most seasonable for the occasion. These are they that turn black into white, blow hot and cold with the same breath, and carry a far different meaning in their breast from what they feign with their tongue. Yet, in the midst of all their prosperity, princes in this respect seem to me most unfortunate, because, having no one to tell them truth, they are forced to receive flatterers for friends." But, some one may say, the ears of princes are strangers to truth, and for this reason they avoid those wise men, because they fear lest someone more frank than the rest should dare to speak to them things rather true than pleasant. For so the matter is, that they don't much care for truth. And yet this is found by experience among my fools, that not only truths, but even open reproaches are heard with pleasure, so that the same thing which, if it came from a wise man's mouth, might prove a capital crime, 
spoken by a fool, is received with delight. For truth carries with it a certain peculiar power of pleasing, if no accident fall in to give occasion of offence, which faculty the gods have given only to fools. And for the same reasons is it that women are so earnestly delighted with this kind of man, as being more propensed by nature to pleasure and toys. And whatsoever they may happen to do with them, although sometimes it be of the most serious, yet they turn it to jest and laughter, as that sex was ever quick-witted, especially to colour their own faults. But to return to the happiness of fools, who, when they have passed over this life with a great deal of pleasantness, and without so much as the least fear or sense of death, they go straight forth into the Elysian field, to recreate their pious and careless souls with such sports as they used here. Let's proceed, then, and compare the condition of any of your wise men with that of this fool. Fancy to me now some example of wisdom you'd set up against him, one that had spent his childhood and youth in learning the sciences, and lost the sweetest part of his life in watchings, cares, studies, and for the remaining part of it never so much as tasted the least of pleasure. Ever sparing, poor, sad, sour, unjust and rigorous to himself, and troublesome and hateful to others, broken with paleness, leanness, crassness, sore eyes, and an old age and death contracted before their time. Though yet, what matter is it, when he die, that never lived? And such is the picture of this great wise man. And here again do those frogs of the Stoics croak at me, and say that nothing is more miserable than madness. But folly is the next degree, if not the very thing. For what else is madness than for a man to be out of his wits? But to let them see how they are clean out of the way, with the muse's good favour, will take this syllogism in pieces. Subtly argued, I must confess, but as Socrates in Plato teaches us how by splitting one Venus and one Cupid to make two of either, in like manner should those logicians have done, and distinguished madness from madness, if at least they would be thought to be well in their wits themselves. For all madness is not miserable, or Horace had never called his poetical fury a beloved madness nor Plato placed the raptures of poets, prophets, and lovers among the chiefest blessings of his life, nor that Sibyl in Virgil called Aeneas' travels mad labours. But there are two sorts of madness, the one that which the revengeful furies send privily from hell, as often as they let loose their snakes and put into men's breasts either the desire of war or an insatiate thirst after gold, or some dishonest love, or parasite, or incest, or sacrilege, or the like plagues, or when they terrify some guilty soul with the conscience of his crimes. The other, but nothing like this, that which comes from me, and is of all other things the most desirable, which happens as often as some pleasing dotage not only clears the mind of its troublesome cares, but renders it more jocund. And this was that which, as a special blessing of the gods, Cicero, writing to his friend Atticus, wished to himself that he might be the less sensible of those miseries that then hung over the commonwealth. Nor was that Grecian in Horace much wide of it, who was so far made that he would sit by himself whole days in the theatre, laughing and clapping his hands, as if he had seen some tragedy acting, whereas in truth there was nothing presented. Yet in other things a man well enough, pleasant among his friends, 
kind to his wife, and so good a master to his servants, that if they had broken the seal of his bottle, he would not have run mad for it. But at last, when by the care of his friends and physic he was freed from his distemper and become his own man again, he thus expostulates with them. Now, by Pollux, my friends, you have rather killed than preserved me in thus forcing me for my pleasure. By which, you see, he liked it so well that he lost it against his will. And trust me, I think they were the madder of the two, and had the greater need of hellebore, that should offer to look upon so pleasant a madness as an evil to be removed by physic, though yet I have not determined whether every distemper of the sense or understanding be to be called madness. For neither he that having weak eyes should take a mule for an ass, nor he that should admire an insipid poem as excellent would be presently thought mad, but he that not only errs in his senses, but is deceived also in his judgment, and that too more than ordinary and upon all occasions, he, I must confess, would be thought to come very near to it. As if any one hearing an ass bray should take it for excellent music, or a beggar conceive himself a king. And yet this kind of madness, if, as it commonly happens, it turns to pleasure, it brings a great delight not only to them that are possessed with it, but to those also that behold it, though perhaps they may not be altogether so mad as the other, for the species of this madness is much larger than the people take it to be. For one madman laughs at another, and beget themselves a mutual pleasure. Nor does it seldom happen that he that is the more mad laughs at him that is less mad. And in this every man is the more happy in how many respects the more he is mad. And if I were judge in the case, he should be ranged in that class of folly that is peculiarly mine, which in truth is so large and universal that I scarce know any one in all mankind that is wise at all hours, or has not some tang or other of madness. And to this class do they appertain that slight everything in comparison of hunting, and protest they take an unimaginable pleasure to hear the yell of the horns and the yelps of the hounds, and I believe could pick somewhat extraordinary out of their very excrement. And then what pleasure they take to see a buck or the like unlaced. Let ordinary fellows cut up an ox or a weather. T'were a crime to have this done by anything less than a gentleman, who, with his hat off, on his bare knees, and a couteau for that purpose, for every sword or knife is not allowable, with a curious superstition and certain postures, lays open the several parts in their respective order, while they that hem him in admire it with silence, as some new religious ceremony, though perhaps they have seen it a hundred times before. And if any of them chance to get the least piece of it, he presently thinks himself no small gentleman, in all which they drive at nothing more than to become beasts themselves, while yet they imagine they live the life of princes. End of part four.